My name is Jason Martin. I'm the worship pastor here at Pathway. It's great to be with you. Great to have the opportunity to come before you with the word. We're talking about the real thing. The real thing. We want to be the real thing as we follow after God who we believe to be the real thing. We want to be real. It's a teaching series we're in going through the book of 1 John called The Real Thing because we want to be the real thing. We want to be real. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be an imposter. We don't want to be a counterfeit. We want to be the real deal, genuine article thing. The Winter Olympics did start this weekend. Opening ceremonies were on Friday night. And those who were at the ceremony, some of which uh, were, were, were blessed by the presence of our president, Donald Trump, and the North Korean Supreme Leader, Kim Jong-un. I don't know if you noticed that, but the, their presence, they blessed many people there until security guards noticed that they, these two, were not the real thing and had them escorted out of the stadium. Yeah, bummer deal for those two guys. I'm sure they were really pumped about the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, but that's not why they were there. In fact, the Kim impersonator said, we wanted to surprise everyone and bring world peace. And then we're being escorted out by security guards, which I think is really unfair. Doesn't everyone want peace? Of course. He's so right. Of course, they could have brought world peace, but they were escorted out. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you have the right fade haircut or the right colored tie. And it certainly doesn't matter if you say the right things. Those kinds of things don't make you the real thing. And they certainly cannot help you bring about world peace. The evidence of our realness, the evidence of our realness will always be found in something more than what is on the surface. And today we're going to be talking about the real thing, how we can be the real thing, and what that looks like in what I believe John is talking about as our family resemblance. The real thing in relation to our family resemblance. That's essentially what we're going to look at today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be starting at verse 29 where Pastor Jeff left off last week and pick it up from there. You can follow along in your Bible or in the Bible that's in the seat in front of you, whether you are in our response venue or our moon venue uh, or here in the worship center. We're glad to have you and hopefully no matter where you are, you can find the scripture somewhere. Like I said, either in your Bible, in the Bible in the seat in front of you or on the version app. You can follow along in the outline that you received in your bulletin and also in version as well. 1 John chapter 2 verse 29. John writes to his audience and says this, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. God is righteous, he says, and you can know that those who practice righteousness are born of him. And this is the first time we get this glimpse here in our text for today of this idea of family resemblance. It's fun to see how children resemble their parents, isn't it? At least when it's the good things, of course, that we like about ourselves as parents. Although I can't tell you how many times I've been asked when looking over the, at the time, a brand new baby, 
if that baby resembled me or my wife. Over the years, I've heard that question a few times, and I'll be honest with you. Looking at the wrinkly, blotchy skin and hearing that sad cry, I mean, I often think, like, I hopefully neither one of us. But it's, it's one thing to resemble the way a child looks. It's one thing for the child to, uh, to, to, to notice that or to notice the way that a, a child resembles looks. It's a whole other thing to see the resemblance in the way a child lives. My three-year-old son drinks coffee almost every morning. I don't know if I'm proud of this or not. You can go ahead and judge me. I don't care. I'm just using it as an example of how, how he resembles his parents. The thing is, though, he recently started drinking his coffee with almond milk only, no sugar, no sweetener. It took me 40 years to be able to drink my coffee without anything sweet in it. He's three. By the time he's five, he's going to be drinking his coffee black, I'm sure. And by the time he's seven, straight up shots of espresso. By the time he's nine, he'll be roasting his own coffee beans. It's getting out of control. But coffee is good, in my opinion. So if that's going to be something that he resembles his parents in, that's, that's a good thing. Honestly, it's one of the few good things about us that we can pass on to our children. What parent does not want their kids, their children, to resemble them in the best things about them and obviously reject those things that are worst about them. But verse 29 says, If you know that He, God, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. With God the Father, there is only Righteousness. There's only good. There's not, there's not bad traits that he can pass on to his children. So to resemble him is to live righteously. Or to, one way to understand that word of righteousness is to, to do God's right. To live in God's right. And living in God's right is not about saying all the right things. It's about being the real thing as his children. This is why we can say, and this is our bottom line for today, feel free to write this down, that the evidence of our family resemblance is not found in the words we recite, but in the life we practice. The evidence, the example, the proof, the evidence of our family resemblance, our family resemblance with our God, is not found in the words we recite, but in the life we practice. It's not found in the words we recite, but in the life we practice. The proof is in the practice. Turn to your neighbor and say, the proof is in the practice. Turn to them and say that. The proof is in the practice. Maybe if that's the only thing that we walk away with today, we can remember that. The proof is in the practice. John continues in verse 1 of chapter 3. So let's turn over or turn to the third chapter. So we've just read verse 29 of chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love, or your, your version might say, or you may have heard it said like this, behold what manner of love. You know that song, right? Behold what manner of love the Father has given. Don't worry, I won't lead us in the round. It's a great, great campfire song. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 
and so we are. He starts off saying people that who practice righteousness are born of God because their father is righteous. It's a family resemblance. Then he says here in verse 1, see what kind of love or behold what manner of love the father is given to us that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love is given to us, that we should be called children of God. Don't move past this phrase too quickly, because if you do, you'll be doing exactly what John does not want you to do. Why he says this, see what kind of love, or behold what kind of love, is because he wants you to stop for a moment and think about it. Catch this, if you will. May I have your attention, please. Consider this. Think about this love. Behold, what manner of love? What kind of love are we talking about here? What is John drawing our attention to? We could spend a long time in just verse 1 of thinking about all the different things that are being spoken of here in just this verse, but we won't. We're going to keep moving. But if just for a moment, if we can look at it, we know that it is a love that God gives us. See what kind of love he has given to us. I remember when I was a kid, and I would, uh, in, you know, in grade school, and our class would make our own Valentine's mailboxes so that we could receive the Valentine's that our classmates would make. We typically would make them like out of old milk cartons and things like that. And our, and our classmates would write these Valentine's and put them in our box. It was just a really special occasion. And I always loved getting those Valentine's. I mean, who wouldn't like to get them? Today it's a little bit different because I think back then, back in the olden days, we would like write our own Valentine's. Today you like, you buy a box of like Paw Patrol Valentine's. They're all the same or or your Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, whatever it might be, there's nothing that says, I love you, like a Star Wars stormtrooper pointing his blaster rifle at you. But who doesn't love getting those Valentines from their classmates? But then I realized that I got a, cl- I got a Valentine from every classmate every time, and I would write one for every classmate. We had to do it. It wasn't real love. It wasn't true love. We had to send those valentines. And sure, it was still fun to receive them, but we had to receive the love. We had to give the love. That is not the case with God. It is not forced. No one is forcing him to do it. His love is overflowing because of who he is. His love is never ending, and it's absolutely unforced because he is love. There is nothing fake about his love. It is real because that is who he is. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's given us this love because that's who he is. The kind of love that doesn't stop and is freely given. The kind of love that draws us to himself because that's what he desires. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3. The prophet says, Long ago the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love. I have drawn you to myself. An unfailing, unstoppable love. And he has given us this love. Not so only we would marvel at it, 
not so that we can just be impressed by it, not so that he would hold over his love over our heads and say, see what kind of love I can give and what you can't. Look at my Valentine. He's not doing that. He's not holding it over us. He has given it to us. And not just that, it's a love that is given to us that we should be called children of God. This isn't just a name that we're given, a title that we're given. This is a family adoption that we would be called children of God. This love He has given us, this love is now within us. In his gospel, John writes this, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. His love is so great that in giving it to us, He calls us His children. When we think of the family resemblance we have with God our Father, when we think of that family resemblance, we will see the privilege of identity that we have. The privilege of identity. We all look for identity in our lives. Sometimes it just comes, it just happens to us. We, we're identified in a certain way. We're all looking for identity. Sometimes we find our identity in our jobs or in our family. But if you consider the privilege of identity when it comes to being called a child of God, being called a child of God is a privilege. It is an identity that can give us a confidence and a purpose. This is Sabrina Samater. Sabrina is 19 and was born in Kenya and raised in Austria. She is the first ever alpine skier to represent Kenya in the Winter Olympics and only the second Winter Olympian ever from Kenya. She represents her country and at this time her identity is wrapped up in being an Olympian for Kenya. And her country gave her the right to do so. But here's what's different about Sabrina's right and the right God gave us to be called his children. Sabrina earned her right on the ski slopes, working hard, practicing, diligently working at her craft. She earned her right to have that identity as an Olympian from Kenya. We, on the other hand, did nothing. We did nothing. We did not earn God's favor at all. We did not earn that identity to be called His children. In fact, God gave us the right to be called His children after we kept crashing and crashing down the hill, after we kept falling down the slopes, crashing, and when we finally realized and looked up to God and said, I actually can't do this. That's when he gave us the right to be called children of God. When we came to him in weakness, when we came to him recognizing that he is God and that we can do nothing to earn his favor, to earn that identity to be called his children. Sabrina earned the right to have the identity and privilege of a Kenyan Olympic skier. Our identity as God's children is given to us because God loves us. Because he loves us. As we continue to read, we see that John makes a pivot. He makes a pivot from what he's talking about, the love of God, this behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. He makes a pivot, 
And then he says this, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I find this phrase interesting because I I see it as both encouraging and challenging. He's almost encouraging them and challenging them at the same time. On one hand, it's an encouragement. The world doesn't know you as God's children because it doesn't know God. It doesn't know the Father. Don't worry. Don't take it personally. They don't know your Father either. On the other hand, it's a challenge. On the other hand, it's a challenge. A challenge to be the evidence of this family resemblance. A challenge to be the evidence of this family resemblance. As Dr. Marianne May Thompson writes, there's not only privilege in this identity of being called God's children, but responsibility. We are called to live in such a way that the family resemblance becomes clearer and clearer to those around us. The secret to this is what John describes as our abiding or belonging in Christ. As we continue to abide in Christ, something that Pastor Jeff spoke, spoke of many times last weekend in the text, this idea of abiding in Christ, as we continue to do this, our family resemblance becomes less obscure and more obvious. We see this in our own families. As time goes by, the longer we are with one another, the longer that we are with family members, we begin to look and act more like one another. Children begin to look and act more like their parents as they get older. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, however you see it. Even spouses begin to look alike over time. Have you noticed that? Have you seen couples before and you think, man, I don't know. Are they brother and sister? Or are they husband and wife? They look so much alike. Spouses begin to look alike. And if you've noticed this, you're not the only one. University of Michigan psychologist Robert Zajonk suggests that couples look more alike as they grow older because people in close contact mimic each other's facial expressions. In other words, if your partner has a good sense of humor and laughs a lot, he or she will probably develop laugh lines around their mouth, and so will you. And this is just one reason why we begin to look like those that we're with. And John is saying that the more that we abide with God, the more that we abide in Christ, we will begin to to show and demonstrate that family resemblance. We are called the children of God, but we have that responsibility. The world around us needs to see and notice the evidence of that family resemblance. We have a responsibility to help them see it. One of the ways that we do this is by living in the hope and anticipation of what God is going to do. By living in the hope and anticipation of what God is going to do. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He says, we are, we are God's children, but we are not yet fully complete in who God is making us to be. Our family resemblance will become more obvious when we have 
the perspective of hope. The perspective of hope. As God's children, we have a perspective that is filtered with hope. We have hope because we know that there will be a completion to who God is making us to be. The Apostle Paul writes about this, and he says, I I am confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the hope that we have. Now, I don't do puzzles, but I know people who do puzzles, especially when they're kept home from school because of the snow. I've seen it happen. I've seen a lot of puzzles happen. And I know this. I know that when people get a puzzle out and dump the box of cardboard puzzle pieces on the table, they don't sit back in the chair and think, what a mess. Now what are we going to do? We need to clean this up. That's not what happens. People who put together puzzles start putting it together because they have an expectant hope that it will be completed. They have an expectant hope that eventually it's going to be completed. John says that we also hope because one day we will experience completion and clearly see Jesus as he is. For some of you, this might sound like a crazy kind of hope. To me, that sounds crazy. But it's a crazy, confident hope that we have. It's a crazy confident hope, and it's an important hope in what Jesus is going to do in us in making us look more like himself and complete us. He says, whoever has this hope purifies himself, there at the end of verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. A personal confession I've always been intimidated by this verse. I've always been a little challenged by this verse to the point of being intimidated by it. Because I've always read that verse as a word of condemnation. Drawing up all those times when I feel like I haven't been pure, when I should be pure. And I've read those words as condemnation as when I should have been reading it as a recipe for preparation. A recipe for preparation. The hope of one day seeing Jesus as he should or as he is should inspire us to put away anything that would cloud our vision. The hope of seeing Jesus as he is should inspire us to get rid of anything that would cloud our ability to see him. This is not a verse to remind us of how impure we are and hold it over our heads. That's not what John is doing. It's a verse that invites us to prepare ourselves for Christ. Like you might prepare your home for an important guest. Like a bride might joyfully prepare for her groom on her wedding day, the bride of Christ joyfully prepares for Jesus and for his appearing. This verse is not here to invoke shame. It is to invite us to share in this expectant hope. It is not a word of condemnation, but a recipe for joyful preparation. As we clear off the lenses, adjust our focus, and see the Savior more clearly. And look at what John says will happen when we see him. 
Look at what he says there. He says, we will be like him. As Paul says in Colossians, we now share in the resurrection of Jesus. We share in the resurrection. So we too, because this is the case, we too will one, we will one day resemble the risen, resurrected Christ. And this will be a glorious family resemblance. I love the way that, that commentator, writer, pastor N.T. Wright comments on this scripture. He says, The real risen Jesus, when he meets us, will far outshine any pictures we might have formed of him in advance. Will far outshine any pictures we might have formed of him in advance. When our blindness is cured, we will gaze and gaze on the face through which God has loved us so much. And perhaps, maybe this is the point of what John is saying, perhaps his look will transform our faces. Perhaps we will begin to copy his expressions. So we rejoice in this preparation as an act of faith. We live in this way so that our family resemblance is becoming less and less obscure and more and more obvious to the world and to the people around us. Remember, the evidence of our family resemblance is not found in the words we recite, but in the life we practice. It's found in the life that we practice. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's continue in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John expands a little on that family trait that he brought up all the way back in verse 29 of chapter 2 that those who practice righteousness are born of God because He is righteous. They practice righteousness, doing God's right. They do not practice sin. This seems really simple, doesn't it? Follow after God, you practice righteousness. You don't follow God, you practice sin. Seems simple, but it's not, is it? We know it's not that simple because we know that we sin. We still sin. We still sin. So is John saying that if we sin, we're out of luck? Is he saying that if, our, if there is sin in our lives that we are no longer called God's children? Does, does sin make us lose our hopeful perspective? or decline our identity, that privilege of our identity as God's children. Does sin do this? Because we both know, every one of us knows, we still sin. Before we answer that, don't you love it or hate it, depending on sarcasm, don't you love it when your credit card gets declined? 
No, nobody loves that. I've been at, uh, I was at Aldi just the other, other day, and, and I, I had the cart all filled. All my food was checked in, and my car got declined, and I just felt like it was the end of the world. I felt like, what am I going to do now? Like, what is going to happen? And then I looked at my wallet, and I found another card, and it worked. But it's just a miserable feeling to, like, have that, that little word appear declined. Can you imagine what that would be like for us? Because of sin, we look and we see that word, declined. That is not what John is saying. John knows that we sin. We know that he knows that we sin. In chapter 1, he's very clear when he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. Adding that if we confess our sin, again, acknowledging that we do still sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is not saying here that if we are children of God, we are sinless. That is not what he's saying at all. He's saying children of God don't make a point to practice sin. To practice sin. Sin, for the child of God, is not a drumbeat that we march to. Sin is not our first desire. Sin has been defeated, so we live in the reality of that victory. Sin is not something that we choose to practice. When we look at sin, we respond to it with confession. When we look look at sin, we respond with repentance. We do not practice sin. Which brings us to the third way to look at our family resemblance. That is that we are committed as children of God to the practice of overcoming. The practice of overcoming. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John mentions the practice of sinning, a practice that is of the devil. Typically, when that phrase, of the devil, is used, it's it's often when someone's eating junk food that they shouldn't be eating or doing a workout that they they don't want to do, like, oh, this buffalo chicken dip, it's of the devil. Or, oh, this tricep press, it's of the devil, whatever it might be. I don't think the devil is all that concerned about those types of things. I don't think the devil, that's not what the practice of the devil is. I don't think that's the case. Based on what John is talking about, based on just the things that we've been learning here in 1 John, I think the devil is more concerned that to try and convince people that Jesus is not the Christ. I think the devil is concerned with, with convincing people that their sins don't need to be forgiven or that they don't even sin. I think the devil is concerned with trying to convince people that God is not eternal and that God does not love and that God has not overcome sin and death. Those are the things that the devil tries to convince us. And if we live in that, then we're listening to the devil. Yet here we are, here we stand, and here we sit, believing that Jesus Christ is the Christ, that he forgives our sins, that he has overcome sin and death, and that he is ushering in an eternal kingdom driven by love. This is why we practice 
overcoming. This is why we live by the practice of overcoming and practice of victory. What greater family resemblance is there than to live this way? Practice. That word, practice. Are we talking about practice? Practice is an important word when we talk about our faith. Practice is an important word when we talk about our faith. Here's why. Not only should we practice righteousness, but we should be practicing righteousness as well. Practicing doing God's right. We are practicing being an overcomer. Every time we confess our sins, every time we repent, every time we turn from darkness to light, we are practicing being an overcomer. Like anything else in life, to grow, you need to practice. Listen to how D.A. Carson puts it. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. People don't just slide into that. It's not something that we gravitate towards. It's not something that we drift towards. We don't accidentally become better at overcoming. We receive God's grace, and in our practice of faith, we look more and more like Jesus, the overcomer. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I love how simply John puts that. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And yet, it's so simple, but it's so profound, because even in his death, when it seemed like the devil, when it seemed like evil had won, even when Jesus was on the cross, he was destroying the devil's work in us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is earning victory even there on the cross when it seemed like evil had won. The child of God doesn't practice sin because that's a practice that is doomed to failure. The first time Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Sin and lawlessness have already taken the loss. It's bad practice to imitate the patterns of the devil. For those patterns are ultimately destroyed. Sometimes in the sporting world, there are teams that are destined to lose. And you know the teams I'm talking about. They're just, they lose every year. They're destined to lose. Some seem to do it intentionally. They call it tanking. Other teams don't want to lose but can't help it. One particular basketball team was experiencing a pattern of unprecedented losing to the point that their general manager this week cleaned house and got rid of half the team. He said that he needed to shake some things up because, quote, we felt like we were on a slow death march, and that's not something I wanted to be a part of. We felt like we were on a slow death march. If only it was that clear in the real world. If only it is that clear in real life. The devil has lost, and his practices will ultimately be destroyed. He is on a slow death march, and this is not something that we would choose to be a part of. Is it? 
For the children of God, this is entirely different. Those who John describes as being born of God, those who have the, the seed of God, as he says, a mysterious phrase indicating that the Father, that God is our Father, because we are born of God, the children of God live a life that is patterned by righteousness and practicing love. Look at what he says there in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the outflow of our relationship with God, and it is the evidence of our family resemblance. Doing God's right and loving like God loves. It is clear that righteousness and love are key attributes of a child of God. This makes sense. For if, for if God's love has done all this for us, how can we stand by holding back that love that He has given us? How can we stand by and hold that back from our neighbor? When we don't love, we keep our family resemblance at the obscure level rather than making it obvious. It's not just what we say, but how we live. The evidence of our family resemblance is not found in the words we recite but in the life we practice. The proof is in the practice. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you that we can come to this place and worship you. I ask that you would help us to be a people who follow after you, that we would look like you, our Father. I pray that the example of Jesus, the love that was demonstrated on the cross, the love that is demonstrated to us would be an example that we would follow that our family resemblance would be obvious to those that we come in contact with. God, I pray that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. I pray that you would continue to show yourself faithful to us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.